Hi everyone and uh, welcome to the Rupa Subramanya show. Now for many of us in Canada and other parts of the world, it sure has been a hot summer. We've seen heat waves, uh, heat advisories in many US and Canadian cities, as well as in Europe and parts of Asia and raging wildfires in both the east and the west, which uh, led to a haze of smog over many cities across the east coast, including uh, right here in Ottawa. And yes, it was bad for a few days. However, here's the crux. Is it a sign that we're in the midst of some life and death climate emergency that uh, many of our establishment politicians and uh, folks in the legacy media are claiming? Not a day goes by that some story of a type called climate change alarmism where something or the other is blamed on climate change, whether, whether it's heat or forest fires. Some of the stories are really a stretch and rather hysterical where the temperature or the climate is incidental. For example, there was a story in the US recently where eight dogs died in an unair conditioned and unventilated cargo area of a truck. That's absolutely horrific and tragic. But the fault here is not the climate. The fault is the driver who was oblivious uh, of the fact that the air conditioning in the truck uh, had stopped working or maybe the company he worked for, for not keeping their equipment uh, properly maintained. It's either a tragic accident or perhaps a case of animal abuse. Even without climate change, if you lock up an animal or a human being for that matter in a cage with absolutely no ventilation or, or cooling on a hot summer day, the consequences will inevitably be tragic. This is just one example of many stories out there that's been in the news recently. My own view is that climate change activists have seized on a summer of hot weather to ramp up alarmism around climate change. That includes the government and of course, the legacy media. Here in Eastern Ontario, for example, an emergency alert went, up, uh, went off a few days ago on everyone's cell phones because of an impending thunderstorm. It's almost as if they think we've never dealt with thunderstorms and rain before. As you might expect, uh, here in Canada, like with many uh, issues, there's been very little pushback against a climate change alarmism. But there is one important voice, one important exception, and that is my guest today. Uh, please welcome Ross McKittrick who is a professor of environmental economics at Guelph University and a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. He does both academic research and writes op-eds on climate issues. And it's a real pleasure to have him on the podcast to share his insights with us. Um, Ross, welcome to the show. Um, I was it's a real pleasure to have you here. Uh, now, I was hoping to frame our conversation around a couple of um, recent pieces you wrote in the Financial Post uh, I, back in February. You very rightly raised the alarm of the danger of censorship when it comes to uh, diverging views on issues that relate to climate change and the apparent enthusiasm of the Trudeau government and uh, big chunks of the legacy media to label as disinformation or misinformation 
misinformation, any view that challenges the orthodox establishment view on climate change, that climate change is an impending dis- disaster and the sky is about to fall on us. How do you how do you think we got into this situation in Canada? And how is it that the spirit of free debate on this issue, along with many other uh, such issues, has all but extinguished? Mm, wow. Uh... It's been building for a long time. Um, since I've been writing and studying on the climate change issue now for, I guess, close to 30 years, um, there's always been, even decades ago, there was a claim that the science is settled, debate's over. And that was made by people who thought that there's only a small group of people that are qualified to speak to the issue. and. Um, I think the mechanism that you're referring to that is very active in the climate change field, but it's also active, we saw it with respect to COVID as well. Um, It's that you're standing to discuss the issue publicly or in an official capacity isn't based on your qualifications or the data you have or the scientific uh, background that you bring. It's based on your, your willingness to adhere to a narrative. So um, when you see this narrative-based standing emerge, mm-hmm. um, then it's, it's, it's departed from what we usually think of as, as the kind of public debate that we want to have on important issues. Um, so with COVID, for instance, you, you would see the phrase like, well, we should follow the science, and uh, somebody might say something challenging whether the vaccines were effective in stopping transmission, and they'd be shut down because... Uh, someone might say, well, I'm going to listen to qualified experts. Now, the retort that you could bring at that point would be to say, well, okay, I'll bring you qualified experts who are saying that. Hmm. But then they'll do the switch and say, well, because they disagree with the official line, they're not actually qualified. And so it's this tautological definition. And the same thing happens and has been happening all the way through on the climate change issue that you'll have journalists or politicians or people with a, an agenda to push who will say, we're only going to listen to qualified climate scientists on this point. And so then if I say, okay, well, here's a scientist who disagrees with you. Oh, well, they're not qualified because we're only going to listen to qualified scientists who stick to the narrative. So that kind of mechanism, I. I assume that it emerges in these contentious debates because there's an agenda and there's a narrative that supports the agenda and then the narrative becomes the one thing everybody needs to uphold. And then you look for something that will break through the noise. So in the case of COVID, a lot of things happened in a very short time span, like over about two years that I've been watching happen over decadal time spans on the climate change issue. But I think a big one for people was they got told that the vaccine will prevent transmission. If you take the vaccine, you can't get COVID and you can't give it to anyone else. And that was a a very strong message and anyone who disagreed with it was shut out of the discussion. And then after the vaccine campaigns, they had to start reporting that people who were fully vaccinated were getting COVID again and that it was spreading just as rapidly among vaccinated as unvaccinated people. So in that sense, people got to see a really clear example of how this 
narrative-based standing distorted the whole discussion because you weren't allowed to hear from the people who predicted that and who um, who are critical of, of the, the vaccine campaigns. In the case of climate change, it's a bigger problem because a lot of the discussion centers around things that you and I can't actually see with our own eyes. So if you're told it's the warmest year in a thousand years, mm -hmm. well, how on earth would we know whether that's true or not? The, the, a statement like that is an abstraction. All it means is somebody drew a chart using some statistical methodology and the line either slopes up or slopes down, but it doesn't correspond to anything that you and I could go out and measure. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, if, if let's say a tornado hits somewhere in Ontario and someone says, well, this is caused by climate change. Well, how, how can we respond to that? I mean, that is, it's a statement that can't be proven or disproven. It's just put out there. And then if you do try to challenge it, uh, then we get back to this, uh, narrative-based dismissal of, of these things. Um, right now, we're at a stage where every bad thing that happens, including the forest fires this summer, um, right away that's held up as proof of climate change. And again, the claims, the scientific issues there are really subtle, really difficult. Um, they involve trying to deal with a lot of data and a lot of uncertainty. And the farther away you get from the media and politicians, the, the more you encounter the uncertainty and the hesitation on the part of experts to, to make these kinds of claims. Um, with regard to that piece that you mentioned about the disinformation, I was responding to what I think is a really uh, appalling report by uh, the, uh, I can't remember what it's called now, the Canadian Academies uh, Society, something or other, and the whole report was based on this premise that uh, there's this plague of disinformation and misinformation by bad actors out there. And what we need to do is get the government to censor social media. Mm. And so you have uh, academics who aren't particularly qualified in any of these areas uh, putting a report out that was, uh, at least in the climate area, had no expert uh experts involved in writing it and made lots of claims that were dubious at best and yet this was this group of people were wanting the authority to shut down all other discussion on, on that topic and on COVID and, and others um, so I guess I've just described the problem but I don't really have an answer to how we got here yeah. on why this has happened and um, all I can say is we have to do everything we can to fight it and make sure that we don't give up our rights to have fulsome debates on on uh, public issues yeah no absolutely uh you know i want to turn to uh an important climate change study um that very few people are talking about and i happen to uh, come across the study in your op-ed for the financial post uh, the study is a little technical so could you break it down for the lay person uh, why your research and that of other scholars shows um, that the standard climate change models tend to over predict the extent of global warming hmm. um well um so this is an issue i've, I've looked at for a long time i've, I've co-authored with um meteorologists and, and with other um, statisticians uh, it's a big topic in, in the field basically comparing model reconstructions of the last few decades with what was actually observed and it's important to do this because 
uh, climate models, when they're built, um, they embed um, what people understand about the processes that drive weather and climate. Um, but you never have enough information to be sure you've got the right equations in your model. So you have to run the model and see how it does in comparison against reality. And the particular question we're interested in is how much warming do you get if you add more CO2 to the atmosphere? And so all the models predict warming. Um, there's a huge spread in the models. This is one thing people need to understand. If, if you decide that I'm, I'm going to tailor my views on climate change to the mainstream, I'm, I'm just going to be, I'm going to follow the mainstream of science. Well, that's a, a huge range, just looking at the main climate models. You, you've got climate models that'll say, if you double the CO2 in the air, you don't get much warming at all. And it's very slow. And other models that will say you'll rapidly warm five or six degrees and cause all kinds of problems. Um, we've, uh, my co-authors and I have focused on a particular part of the climate called the tropical troposphere. Now the troposphere is the layer of air from about one kilometers up to about 10 kilometers. And um, that region of the atmosphere is where the greenhouse gases mix and it's where climate models all say there should be um, the most rapid warming, um, but especially in the troposphere over the tropics. And over the tropics, you get a huge buildup of water vapor in the atmosphere. And so um, there's a, a notion called the hot spot in, in climate models, which is um, a very amplified response to greenhouse gases in, uh, in that large section of, of the atmosphere. So um, for a long time, people in the modeling field have known that every model predicts that um, mm -hmm. you add greenhouse gases to your model, you get a lot of warming in the troposphere over the tropics. So we looked at that and um, uh, I've been, I've published papers, others have published papers have said, you know, pretty much every climate model predicts too much warming in that part of the atmosphere. And in, um, Subsequent papers uh, we showed a couple of years ago that the excess warming now occurs everywhere in the troposphere. It's global now. Um, and this is important because um, there aren't many mechanisms in these models that will give you warming in the troposphere. Um, so if they're getting that wrong, it's probably there's too much sensitivity to greenhouse gases. So you have to kind of set the dial somewhere in your model how much warming you get from greenhouse gases. Now, from the modeling side, there was one data set that they could appeal to that suggested, no, we, we actually may have this right. Um, there are a bunch of data sets based on weather balloon measurements and other data sets based on satellite measurements. And the data sets tended to all agree, except there was one that was a bit of an outlier, and that was called the STAR data set um, produced by um, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which we call NOAA um, in the US. And they had quite a bit of warming in the troposphere mm. and enough warming that the modelers could point to it and say, well, if that data set's correct, we're, we're, we're on the right track. Still a bit too much warming, but within the bound of uncertainty, we're, we're okay. Um, earlier this year, the authors of the STAR data set did a complete revision of how they assembled their data set. And in particular, they responded to some critics from the University of Alabama and Huntsville um, and came to agree with them and said, we've added a, um, a false warming 
trend in this data set in the way that they had calibrated a few different satellite series together. And their revised data set now has the lowest warming of all the satellite data sets. Okay. And so that removes um, one of the big defenses of the climate models. And so now the, the picture that's there, I think is very clear in the data that models have too much sensitivity to greenhouse gases. And that means all these projections that we're hearing about and reading about, um, they're based on models that overpredict the climate response to greenhouse gases. So, um, Russ, uh, do you think this is a benign error uh, of the people who built these models? Uh, or, uh, you know, I know this question sounds a little speculative, but is there an intention to ramp up alarm by making the models predict more glo global warming than we're actually having? Hmm. Um, <laughs> good question, because um right now there's about 40 of these models and they're, they're big undertakings to build a large climate model um and that means there's a community and that means there's peer pressure and um there is discussion uh and it's it's there in the journals that people recognize especially well ironically the models have gotten warmer over time even as evidence has emerged that they warm too much uh, we're now in what's called the sixth generation of climate models um, the, as the labeling goes. Yeah. And they're even warmer than the fifth generation. And when that's when that came out, when the, the data started being pumped out by these models and, and they had even higher climate sensitivity than before, uh, there was trepidation in, in the literature. I mean, it emerged in some commentaries in Science Magazine and places like that, that the modelers themselves were saying, this is the wrong direction that we're going and they don't know why it is. It's a puzzle though, why some of the individual modeling labs, like for instance, the worst of the bunch is the Canadian climate model. And it was singled out in a study. I mentioned this in an earlier op-ed of mine, but a study by a team in England that looked at this bias in the tropospheric warming data. And they pointed out the Canadian climate model warms seven times faster than observations over the test period. So you're feeding greenhouse gases in that model and you get a spectacular amount of warming, but it just doesn't you know, conform to reality. So at a certain point, I have to wonder, why don't the modelers themselves get discouraged by that? I mean, they're, they're making predictions that everybody in the field knows are too hot. So um, why don't they go back and, and, and fix that? I would say... Um, there's a huge reluctance just reading the papers and, and like what they'll do is they'll, they'll come up with a list of what might explain the excess warming. And it'll include on the list, maybe we have too much sensitivity to greenhouse gases, but there's a bunch of other possibilities. And I think what they're doing is looking at every other possibility first. And eventually I think they'll get to, well, we have too much sensitivity to greenhouse gases, but um, if they fix all the models and they fix them all in the same direction, uh, if an IPCC report came out, for instance, that said, all right, we're cutting our projections in half or more, um, I think the field would be devastated by that given <laughs> how much yeah. credence has been placed and how much um, just the whole public debate's been dominated by model projections 
and going back to the earlier discussion, how they shut down any criticism and said, unless you work in this little clique of climate modelers, you don't get to talk about this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, related to that, I mean, in June, you you called out this rhetoric um, around wildfires, uh, forest fires, that uh, the rhetoric was that they're at their worst ever this summer. Um, and then you pointed to evidence, as did I, I think we both shared the same chart on, on Twitter, or X as it's called now. Uh, we we uh, point, You pointed to evidence which shows that forest fires peaked in the 80s and have been getting less s severe since then. And you wrote, wrote about it for the Financial Post. Could you explain why uh, forest fires have been trending down? And, and, and also, um, you know, this past summer, we've certainly seen, you get the perception that you've seen a lot of forest fires. Do you think that's an outlier in this generally falling trend? Um, well, to the first question, I don't know why the number of forest fires has been trending down. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a few metrics that, uh, that are followed. So one is the number of fires. Another is the total area burned. And then there are different measures of severity of fires. Okay. Um, the, um, on the first one, the, the number of fires, the data for Canada goes back to the late 1950s. It goes even farther, but the data that the government's willing to publish goes back to the late 50s. So the number of fires each year grew up to about 1990, and then it peaked, and then it's been going down ever since then. The area burned also grew up to about 1990. And then that that series kind of flattened out. It's it's gone up and down. But for instance, 2020 uh, was the lowest area burned in at least 30 years. Um, and and then this year was the largest area burned. So uh, it's, there's a lot of volatility. And then as far as fire severity goes, uh, there are different measures and one of the papers that I've seen, it's got the uh, numbers trending down, and then people working in the field have sent me other papers that um, that measure differently, and it trends up. Um, although compared to the 1700s and 1800s, as much as we can reconstruct or as they can reconstruct measures from back then, um, fire severity was much worse before the 20th century. Um, so. The whole picture is is a really complicated one, as, as you can imagine. Mm. It's complicated by the fact that um, there is the weather influence, the fire weather, uh, um, uh, dryness, for instance, the amount of wind, the, the conditions that you need thunderstorms or lightning to start most fires. Um, and um, but there's also the human role, uh, mm. the aggressiveness of fire suppression the intrusion of people into forested areas. Um, there's delayed effects of disease outbreaks. So the mountain pine beetle that hit 20 years ago in British Columbia has now left behind stands of dried out um, pegs that mm. um, if fire breaks out in those areas, you get a huge coverage. A lot of land will, will burn very quickly. Um, so uh, there are a lot of uh, conflicting forces there. Um, as to why the number of fires went down, I don't, as far as I know, there isn't a clear explanation of that. Um, if there's a simple climate change story though, we should see increasing area burned around the world. 
because climate change isn't just in Canada. It should yeah. happen around the world. And this is where we can now use satellite data. And there's a couple of satellite-based data series that both show the total area burned from wildfire activity has been going down over the past 20 years. Not by a lot, but it's, it isn't going up. It's, it's going down. So there again, when, when you have a bad year, like this has been a terrible year for forest fires in Canada, uh, an exceptionally um, bad start to the year. Um, and then what caught people's attention was the fact that we not only had a lot of wildfires, but the wind pattern was different. So it was blowing the smoke to the south instead of um, taking it up to the north and dispersing it. So this year, everybody noticed the fires because the wind blew down over the, the eastern seaboard. Um, but uh, you can't take a single bad year and then say, well, that's proof of a trend when the actual trends are going in the other direction. And so the, um, the tweet that I sent and or a couple of tweets and then also the, the op-ed that I wrote just made this point that um, if you want to talk about this based on the long-term trends, uh, the trends are actually going in the opposite direction of this glib claim that climate change means more and bigger forest fires. And you don't just get to pull one year out and say, this proves my theory. If you're gonna pull one year out, why don't we pull out 2020? Which like I say, was was the lowest <laughs> in the whole record. Exactly. And uh, were you called a climate change denier for pointing out facts? <laughs> uh, that is par for the course, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. The surest way to get called a denier is to show people data. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, let's uh, you know take a step back and uh, and look at a big pic the big picture question here. Um, I think we we all agree that human activity increases greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Um, th the real question is what is the magnitude of that effect on the climate? Um, you know, alarmists will say that we're basically at the point of no return and we're heading into a doomsday scenario. Um, you know, what do you make of such claims? And, and, and really, what is a sensible perspective? What's a sensible take on climate change? Hmm. Um, uh, if, um, you can start with the, the points that are universally agreed. So uh, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. So that means um, technically what it means is that um, it absorbs energy in the infrared part of the spectrum. Uh, the earth emits infrared energy as the surface of the earth. That's how it, it cools off from, from the warming of the sun. And so other things being equal, if you increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the air, we should expect warming to happen. That process happens in the middle, though, of a much larger, extremely complex process of, of thermodynamics, of motions of air and water and large-scale weather systems and all the other things that influence uh, temperature and precipitation. And so that basic theory doesn't get you very far in terms of predicting do these emissions of carbon dioxide, is that going to be a big problem or a little problem? Uh, that's never been something you could just answer based on the simple theory that CO2 is a greenhouse gas. Um, that's where you get into the model, which is mm. necessary, but also into the data analysis. 
And this is an, a different strand of, of the discussion that doesn't get much attention, but there's now a long enough data record, both of emissions and greenhouse gas levels and warming, that we can begin to draw some inferences about just how sensitive the climate system is like, likely to be. Mm. So the models occupy this range and it, the, the simplified number is something called the equilibrium climate sensitivity or how much warming you'd get if you double the amount of carbon dioxide in the air. And the traditional range from the IPCC has always been between one and a half and four and a half degrees. So there's some models that go above that, but generally it's one and a half to four and a half degrees. On the economic side, we can then plug that kind of number into an economic model and, and project very approximately, is this a big problem or a little problem based on how economic activity is affected by weather changes? And the answer would be, if it's, oh, sorry, if the um, climate sensitivity is between one and a half and two degrees, this is a non-issue. It's, mm. we couldn't justify any climate policy. If it's two to two and a half degrees, um, it's worth trying to reduce some of the CO2 emissions, but it, we wouldn't want to spend a lot on it. Even when you get up to three degrees, that's the, the assumption of the analysis by, for instance, William Nordhaus, the, mm. the well-known economist, got a Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize. in economics yeah. for his work on this. At three degrees, um, it's worth um, trying to reduce emissions later in the century in order to avoid most, uh, sorry, to avoid a small fraction of the warming later in the century. Not a lot of it, but try to cap emissions later in the century and not, sorry, not cap emissions, um, but slow down emissions later in the century uh, in order to reduce some of the warming. It's only when you get to the really high numbers, like a four degree climate sensitivity or a five degree climate sensitivity that models would then start to say, yeah, this is going to be a really big problem, especially for third world countries. And we have an obligation to um, try to stop emissions from growing and begin to reduce them by the middle of the century. You can get all those different messages, all those different prescriptions in the expert literature. And the problem with alarmism is they'll take the message from the upper end of the literature and make it look like that's all that there is. That's that's the mainstream. And also they'll they'll try to make it sound like that's the path that we're on. Hmm. The empirical literature on climate sensitivity is all clustered at the low end. It's very difficult to look at the historical record and get a climate sensitivity above two and a half degrees. Um, there are tons of studies that based on the empirical literature that have it um, between one and a half and, and two and a half degrees. And um, so, like I say, you stick that in the model and, and I've done this with co-authors. We've taken the integrated assessment models that have the economic side and the climate side and put in um, a, a sensitivity around two degrees and um, what we call the social cost of carbon drops to close to zero. And then, so that means you just can't justify um, policy intervention. The other side that makes this, the other part of it that makes it so difficult is CO2 is a very difficult type of emissions to control. So 
in a country like Canada, we've done an amazing job at reducing other types of air pollution, sulfur dioxide, carbon monoxide, particulates. Uh, we've reduced ground level ozone, um, uh, NOx emissions, as we call it, nitrogen-based gases. Uh, they've all been reduced dramatically since the 1970s, even as our economy has grown considerably in size. The technology allows for that. So on, on your car, if you have a car, you have a thing on a called catalytic converter in the exhaust system, which reduces by a surprising amount, about 90% of the carbon monoxide is eliminated by the catalytic converter. And doesn't effectively, it doesn't cost anything. It's just stuck on there. And you can still drive your car, but you don't release much carbon monoxide. Um, the technology allowed us to do that. There's no technology to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, though. If you burn fossil fuels, you're going to generate a, a certain amount of CO2 based on the carbon content of that fuel. And we've fiddled around with things like underground carbon capture and storage. And in a few places in the world, it's feasible, but it's still very expensive. But that's not a solution and it doesn't reduce it from mobile sources like, like cars. Um, as long as we use fossil fuels, we're going to be releasing CO2 emissions and fossil fuels are our best, most reliable form of energy, which is why even over the past 30 years, when countries have been talking about little else besides climate change, um, fossil fuel use continues to grow and CO2 emissions continue to grow because they're so essential to economic growth and development. So you have these, these two main considerations. Um, the first is CO2 emissions are really, really costly and difficult to reduce. And don't believe politicians when they say the energy transition is a big economic opportunity. We're going to get rich by moving off of fossil fuels. Uh, that's not possible. But then the other side of it is it's not even clear that this is really necessary. When you set aside the rhetoric and just look at the numbers, and climate models and the numbers used in mainstream economic analysis, we could live with this. Um, we can adapt to it fairly easily. We certainly can't stop it. And we mm. could destroy our living standards in a, a vain attempt to try to stop it. But um, based on what I think are the most credible mainstream projections of the outcome of continued use of fossil fuels, uh, we can live with it and adapt to it. And, and the gain in living standard from fossil fuels will far outweigh any costs associated with climate change. So speaking of adaptation and, uh, you know, on how we respond to it. So, you know, touching upon policies and based on your own assessment of how pressing uh, the climate situation actually is, um, how would you go about uh, what what are some sensible economic policies out there to deal with it? Uh, in particular, do you think uh, the use of tar carbon taxes, uh, you know, that have jacked up the cost of living uh, here, in, you know, for Canadians when inflation is already very high, does, does that kind of thing make any sense? Um, from an economic point of view, it does. It's a bit of a, a, a theoretical point, but... Um, if you think about all the activities out there that generate carbon dioxide emissions, um, some of them are incredibly valuable. So if you think about like gas for our ambulance fleet. Um, well, that's really valuable activity. We don't want to restrict that. But 
some of the activity may not be all that necessary, um, just unnecessary car trips or things like that, that um, people are pretty indifferent to. What a carbon tax does is it just puts a little price signal out there that helps people identify which is the least valuable activity that's generating carbon dioxide emissions and will eliminate those first. Um, the level of the carbon tax mm. is kind of a cutoff point. And it says, find the, the, the cheapest ways of reducing emissions and implement those. But once the cost of reducing emissions goes above the level of the carbon tax, you're better off to just keep using the fossil fuels and um, live with the, the outcome. Um, the problem for the people who want to use carbon taxes to reach something like the Paris climate targets, which are very aggressive, uh, the problem is the kind of carbon taxes that people are willing to pay, uh, may not be happy about paying it, but at least they're willing to pay, it doesn't get you anywhere close to the Paris target. Um, gasoline, and uh, fuel use, energy use in general, tends to be pretty non-responsive to the price. People need their fuels, they need to heat their homes, they need to travel, um, they need mm. to get to work. Um, so it's very difficult to change energy consumption just by increasing the price. All that happens is people still buy the energy, but they're paying more for it. Um, that doesn't mean, though, that there are other policies that would be less expensive for reducing CO2 emissions. And the economic way of looking at this, a carbon tax is always going to give you the cheapest emission reductions. So what we're seeing in Canada now is the federal government, they put a, a carbon tax in place. They have a plan to increase it and keep increasing it um, to pretty high level by the end of the decade. But they can also see that this isn't going to reduce CO2 emissions by all that much. So now we've got all these other policies being brought in. Um, the clean fuel standard is one. Um, product uh, energy efficiency rules, the, um, the electric vehicle mandate, um, building energy efficiency rules that will kick in after 2025. And um, so people don't yet perceive how expensive these are going to be. They're going to be incredibly expensive policies to implement. And in a way they have to be because by definition, your carbon tax has already identified all the lowest cost emission reductions. Everything that gets forced through by regulation had to be more expensive than paying the carbon tax. And so in the economics uh, area, we don't like all these other policies because they destroy the efficiency that the carbon tax uh, had. Mm. The reason for them, though, is this unstated problem with the carbon taxes, which is um, it, it gives you the, the cheapest emission reductions. It's just there aren't many cheap emission reductions to be had, so it doesn't get you very far. We, in principle, we could get to the Paris target with carbon taxes, but I think you'd need a carbon tax of close to $500 a ton, and the economic consequences would be uh, devastating. And so um, so that's why governments like to switch around, try different um, alternative policies like they're doing. Um, now, I, I lost track of where we started with the, the discussion, but um, on the question of do carbon taxes make sense? Um, yes, they do, but you have to understand 
Um, there are no inexpensive emission reduction options out there with current technology. Maybe somebody will invent like cold fusion will appear and all of mm -hmm. a sudden we'll get all the emissions free electricity that we want a year from now. But um, with current technology, um, it's going to be very expensive to reduce emissions. So a carbon tax can get you a small amount of emission reductions with minimal effect on the economy. But if you want really large emission reductions on a short time scale, uh, there's no way to do it without what I think would be devastating economic consequences. Interesting. Um, so, um, Ross, I mean that. Um, I mean that's a great assessment of. Uh, um, I mean, how afraid should the average person be? Should we continue to live in? You know, I was I was stunned to uh, discover this. That, uh, that, that there's something called climate change um, induced uh, anxiety. And there are these um, meditation apps out there that actually very specifically deal with people who experience climate change, um, anxiety induced by um, climate change. And, um, and, and, and this is, you know, there are people who literally live in fear because, you know, it's, fairly hazy day out there uh you know whereas you know the rest of the world like i've lived in india where honestly the smog is like that i mean it's not it's not a healthy environment but people are not like panicking about it necessarily you know you know you go on with your life and you have some good days and you have your ba some bad days but i find that people here especially here in canada there's a great deal of fear and again it's also related to things that we've seen in the during the pandemic and you know what what really you know what would you say to those people uh what you're what you're describing is very real the anxiety mm. the fear the the climate change fear however it's not the fear connected to climate change itself it's fear connected to all the alarmist media coverage of climate change um even for someone Let's see, I'm in my 50s, so um, I suppose I've lived long enough that if I compare um, current weather conditions to my childhood, hmm. uh, I might be able to notice a difference. But remember, when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about long-term averages. Uh, over a, a couple of decades, the change might be 0.1 or 0.2 degrees yeah. like small enough that you wouldn't even be able to notice it mm. and one of the things i like to do with my undergrad students since guelph has weather records that go back to the late 1800s is is show them daily temperature records for a bunch of different years from the 1880s to the present and ask them can you tell which year is which which was a recent year and which was from the 1800s because the normal variability is so large that typically, no, they can't. It's not like the current climate looks completely different from what our great, great grandparents experienced in this, this same location. There are little differences, but um, uh, for instance, in Ontario, spring tends to come a bit earlier. The snow melts a bit earlier than it did in, in the 60s. But uh, fall, if anything, has gotten a little cooler. And mm. um, unless you show people a graph, they wouldn't know that. Right. But what people have in their minds 
are is this constant bombardment of headlines that says climate change is going to make the weather worse climate change is going to kill all the species climate change is going to um uh, spread diseases and it's this again it's this abstract concept that um you can't relieve your anxiety by actually looking at something for yourself and, and seeing it like if i told you that um there's a a wolf at your door and provoke fear but you can look out your window and see there's nothing at your door and that will resolve the fear or if there is a wolf then you can deal with it but if i tell you climate change is going to wreck your life well what do you look at to assess this threat it's an abstraction it's um uh it's a computer model it's it's a scenario it's it's um it's something that's completely invisible and as a result um well the, the famous uh saying by fdr we have nothing to fear but fear itself he went on to say a nameless unreasoning fear mm. he was talking during the depression about okay now people are are afraid of the economy in the abstract that there's there's just something out there that's destroying our way of life and so he wanted people to try to focus on concrete things and if if um if people focus on the concrete things including the weather they experience in a typical year i think they'll realize i can deal with this here in canada we deal with winter we deal with summer and everything in between so it's not like we're going to um experience a world that's uh, that's that's outside of that range it's always yeah. going to be somewhere in that range more specifically um i will say that um there's a uh, particular uh what's called a, a climate change scenario that is that dominates the academic field is called RCP 8.5 it's an emission scenario that was cooked up about 10 years ago and it's an extreme upper end emission scenario it, it was it was meant as a kind of a far out worst case scenario basically what happens if we just massively increase coal consumption around the world and we become much less efficient in our electricity system and we generate so many so much greenhouse gas emissions that we warm the planet up um by 6 degrees over the next 80 years it's not going to happen there's no way it could happen nobody who uses that scenario thinks it's a realistic scenario economically it couldn't happen and and just physically it's it's not going to happen but most of the studies that you see in the press are RCP 8.5 scenarios so you plug that into a model and then suddenly you get big ecological chaos and, mm. or you get um big stresses on economies around the world you, you wipe out the wine industry in France or something like that so then what you by the time it hits the headlines and those those studies always make the headlines the studies where um I I saw one recently uh, a a journal article looking at the wine industry in France and agriculture in France generally and the, the conclusion of it was that farmers have adapted in such a way that the climate changes of the past 40 years have actually made them better off and so no one's going to write a newspaper article about that they should but um the headline is going to be somebody ran an RCP 8.5 scenario and agriculture in France gets wiped out and um and then they don't tell you that this was a a far-fetched 
extreme outlier case. Mm. Um, so that's part of uh, what's going on. And it really is, I think, an indictment of the academics who do these studies, and then they feed them to journalists. The journalists write them up without proper context, and it does a lot of damage. It's doing the psychological damage to people of filling their minds with this notion that the climate change that we're seeing is part of a devastating trend that um, we can't stop, and all you can do is is huddle in, in anxiety and... and uh, um, and hope that uh, you'll die before it happens. And mm. um, it's it's a sad situation, but I guess I come down to what's driving it is not climate change. It's this alarmist um, media industry around climate change that they sell a lot of papers and they attract a lot of viewers on websites by um, fanning the flames of climate fear and alarm. Yeah, uh, fear definitely seems to sell or bad news uh seems to sell uh, uh and uh, the media has been doing that uh on a range of different issues not just climate change but we saw that during the pandemic as well uh but ross um i really appreciate you uh taking the time to speak with speak to me and share your very valuable insights with us and i've really enjoyed your writing in the uh, financial post i also write for the national post and uh and i really urge people to check out your columns and um and you know and and you know educate themselves on um you know learning about uh, more about climate change and and your very very sensible takes on the topic so thank you very much i really appreciate you coming on the show and i hope to have you back again soon Thanks, Rupa. And if people want to follow my writings, it's available at rossmckittrick.com. Okay, absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.